Welcome to this episode of Stories of Our Ancestors, in which students of the U.S. Naval Academy share remarkable accounts of their ancestors' triumphs and tragedies, and how they fit into the remarkable mosaic of American history and society. With us in the studio today are Captain Bob Q, Lieutenant Terrence Viernes, and myself, Associate Professor Thomas Burgess. As instructors in the Department of History, all three of us have come to know many midshipmen in our time in Annapolis, but never had the chance until now to hear about their amazing ancestors. This week, we'll listen to three stories that share one of the most enduring themes in human history, immigration and the immigrant experience. Featured today are midshipmen's ancestors who came from very different parts of the world, moved to the United States in pursuit of a better life, and chased after the proverbial American dream. Each narrative captures the hard work, family values, and optimism that have become so characteristically American. In our first story, midshipman Justin Loud describes how his grandparents' lives are impacted by two of the greatest geopolitical upheavals of the 20th century, World War II and then the Chinese Civil War. These events will eventually lead to their arrival in the United States, but it is their own hard work and a little luck that helps them carve out a story that in many ways is the idealized version of the American dream. Hi, my name's Justin Lau. I'm from Pensacola, Florida, and today I'm going to be talking about my grandpa, Jin Lau, and my grandma, Jen Lau. Their lives were vastly different than the one I get to live today. Because of their sacrifices and struggles, I've been able to reap amazing opportunities that they never had access to. So the least I can do is honor them by telling their story. My grandma was born in the Hunan province of China in 1938. Her father, my great-grandfather, was a colonel in the Chinese Nationalist Army. She lived in her townhouse for nearly a decade before Mao and his revolutionaries took over in 1949. Because of my great-grandfather's status, he was now a general, my grandmother's family was able to flee the communists and live in Taipei, Taiwan. My grandpa was born in a small town just outside of Taipei. My grandfather did well in school as a young man and was allowed to study chemical engineering at a university in Taipei. Conscription was mandatory in Taiwan at the time, so as he was finishing his education, he was training to fight the Japanese as an armored vehicle officer. Just before he left to fight the Japanese occupation of nearby islands, he says, and I quote, I met the most gorgeous looking fox, which I'm not sure how to feel about given that's my grandma. Nonetheless. When his tour was over, he returned to Taiwan to marry my grandmother. Together, they decided to pursue a new life by moving to America. Unfortunately, that was very expensive, so my grandpa left first to make enough money to bring my grandma. He got on a plane alone and flew to the U.S. Some family and friends were supposed to pick him up from the airport and set him up, but they never did. To this day, he still doesn't know what happened. For six months, he worked tirelessly bussing tables before having enough money to send for my grandma. My grandma had also been at work back home. Using her own connections, she was able to get my grandpa a job at a chemical plant in Illinois. That company was A.E. Staley's. A.E. Staley's produced chemicals out of agricultural goods like soybeans. Not only did the pay change my grandparents' life, but the head researcher, another Taiwanese expatriate, helped teach my grandpa how to be successful in America. He recalls him saying, you have to speak up here. It is the only way to gain their respect. They only see you as a timid Chinaman. My grandpa took that to heart. He outcompeted his original peers for a slot to get a master's degree in chemical engineering at the University of Michigan paid for by Staley's. 
Eventually, Staley's was bought out, and a merger occurred. Only five of the original 25 engineers were going to be kept. My grandpa emerged from the merger as the head research scientist responsible for leading teams in eight different countries. With this new job, my grandpa and grandma were able to take their two children, my dad and uncle, all over the world. At 55, my grandpa gave up the job and retired. Since then, they've gotten to see their children grow up, go to college, and have four children of their own, all while living in the nicest home in their neighborhood. My grandparents experienced adversity I have never even come close to. They didn't give up and even came out better at every point of hardship. They didn't let their differences define them. They showed a willingness to outwork and outperform everyone around them. They inspired me to aim for bigger, higher goals and never give up. Their lives serve as an inspiration for who I, someday, hope to be. I think that's a really incredible story. First off, just the sheer amount of adversity that his grandparents went through throughout all of these very tumultuous events is, is really incredible. Uh, I think my favorite part of the story, though, is when he arrives, uh, when his grandfather arrives in the United States and uh, this fellow expatriate takes him under his wing to some extent and tells him how to succeed in America, uh, to not be a timid Chinaman, to instead be outspoken and be loud and aggressive about what you want. Uh, I think that's a, just a really interesting take on the part of the immigrant experience, which is living in two different worlds, right? Uh, not only the culture that you came from, but the culture of the place that you've arrived in. Yeah, and that experience really speaks to the stark differences between East and West, especially when it comes to expectations for workers, right? In many Eastern cultures, workers are duty-bound to work hard and then be quiet, follow the orders of their superiors. But, you know, in Western societies, it's more acceptable or at least tolerated to speak up and say, hey, maybe there's a more efficient way to go about doing something. Yeah, I think his uh, grandfather got some really good advice. I, I went to a high school in Seattle, Washington, where I was completely unaware of how diverse that high school was until I saw my yearbook at the end of the year and saw all these photographs of people. I didn't even know were even part of my graduating class. And they were mostly from Southeast Asia. They were Vietnamese who had fled the, the war in the mid-70s and, and their children, basically. And I just... They, they kept a very low profile and, you know, sadly, I wasn't even aware of their existence until it was too late to even say hello. It's funny, I've always thought of that as kind of almost a survival instinct for, for some of these cultures, especially some of these cultures that went through so much uh, adversity during the, during the 19, uh, 1900s. Um, you know, there's the saying that the, the tallest flower gets cut the fir cut first. And so I wonder how much of it is, you know, having gone through some very, very difficult times where to draw attention was probably a pretty bad thing. Uh, that became a survival instinct for a lot of uh, immigrants from, you know, China from who had lived through the Civil War and the World War II, uh, parts of East Asia, so on and so forth. Um, but then again, there's that just great, really interesting point of transition where uh, the things that you carried from you from the old world don't necessarily mesh up with what will bring you success in the new world. Yeah, it's just amazing because I had uh, Justin as my student for a semester and I had no idea that his family had experienced these cataclysmic events of the 20th century. Again, it just goes to show that people are far more complex than you would first assume.
before we wrap the segment up, I, I just think it's amusing that there's that Eastern saying, you know, the tallest flower right, gets cut first. But in in the West, we have the squeaky, <laughs> squeaky wheel, wheel gets the grease. In the next story, midshipman Spencer Clark details some of the darker realities and legal nightmares faced by immigrants during the mid-20th century. These problems were not made any easier by the social and political upheaval in the United States during the era of civil rights movements. Clark's grandmother did not let such challenges discourage her. She instead committed her time and energy towards building the best possible life for her family and community. She's got a ticket to ride. She's got a ticket to ride. My name is Spencer Clark. I live in Ravenna, Ohio, and today I'm going to be telling you a little bit about my grandmother. My mother's mother is named Amy Cordray. However, her full name is actually Amy Lingslaw McDermott Young Cordray. She was born in Scotland and immigrated to the U.S. in her 20s. And I believe that her story provides a beautiful example of what a young woman will do to make the best possible life for herself and her family. She was born in the suburbs of Glasgow, Scotland in May of 1940 and grew up as the second youngest of 10 children in a working class family. Being born in the middle of World War II, her early childhood was shaped by its aftermath as the UK attempted to recover economically. Sadly, her father died when she was only 12, forcing her family to rely on relatives and the surrounding community for support. Despite its challenges, my grandmother remembers her childhood very fondly, always telling stories about going to the beach with her older siblings to collect oysters and having picnics after school. As a teen, she had multiple jobs, including shoe store clerk, box factory worker, and even bus conductress. But still, my grandmother eventually realized that there weren't many career options in her hometown. And by the late 1950s, three of her older siblings had already moved to America for the economic opportunities it offered. So my grandmother decided to do the same. At 18, she began applying for nannying and maid service jobs in America, mostly because those were the only positions available to a young woman like her. After two years of waiting, she finally got a job working for a family in Poughkeepsie, New Jersey. So, at just 20 years old, she left Scotland. Her family didn't have a car, so the local pastor gave my grandmother a ride to the airport in his little red hatchback. It was her first time flying, so it's not exactly surprising that she got on the wrong plane and accidentally flew to Dublin instead of America. But after that little travel hiccup, She eventually landed in New York in 1960. She arrived at an interesting time in America's history. John F. Kennedy had just been elected president and had big plans for government reform. The Vietnam War and civil rights movement were fueling protests all across America. And my grandmother had only been in America for two years before the Cuban Missile Crisis rocked America's foundations. But despite all this going on around her, my grandmother admits that she really didn't have time to focus on anything but work when she first got to the U.S., After arriving in New Jersey, she found out that the family she would be working for lied in their contract, and instead of housekeeping and nannying for two kids, she would be housekeeping and nannying for five kids. That same contract stipulated that my grandmother would have to work for them for two and a half years in order to pay off her plane ticket and work visa expenses. For a year and a half, she worked from 5.30 a.m. to the last person went to sleep every day of the week with no time off. While some of her family members lived only a couple of hours away, without a car, my grandmother really never saw them. 
Eventually, because of the lie in her contract, my grandmother was able to get reassigned to another family in New York City. Although she was glad they gave her Saturdays off, when she contracted colitis, her employers required her to keep working. After my grandmother's brother-in-law heard about this, he threatened to take them to court until they let her out of her contract. She then got a job working as a file clerk in New York City until she met and married my grandfather. My grandfather was enlisted in the Navy at the time and was assigned to the USS Lexington. Soon after they were married, the USS Lexington returned to its original home port in Pensacola, Florida, and my grandparents moved there together in 1966. In the next couple of years, they had two girls, my aunt and my mother. It was around this time that my grandmother decided to try to become a citizen, and after passing her citizenship test, she was glad to finally be able to vote and drive a car. My grandparents lived in a tiny apartment right behind the nursery and preschool where my grandmother worked. She worked there for 30 years and ended up running the business until she retired. She also started a small printing business with my grandfather, which was pretty cleverly named Scott's American Printing, as a nod to my grandparents' ancestry. During her career, my grandmother had a couple of unique opportunities, like teaching at a school for Vietnamese children, where everything she said was translated for the kids. She also became the president of the Florida Association for the Education of Young Children and won awards for her work in youth education. Even now, my grandmother is a guardian ad litem for the state of Florida, meaning that she advocates for foster children in court after they've been separated from their parents. My grandmother started as one of 10 children in an impoverished suburb in Glasgow and has now become a staple of her community, having had an impact on hundreds of children's lives. When I'm tired and faced with a task I don't want to do, I often think of her incredible grit and work ethic and push myself to be a little more resilient and a little more stoic. It is truly humbling that I get to reap the benefits of all the effort she put in to make my family what it is today. What's especially heartbreaking for me when I listen to this story is that that exploitation that had happened to her when she had moved here through that dishonesty and that poor contract or inaccurate contract that uh, she had signed under. And that's not just a story that's limited to this particular experience in the 1960s, because this kind of exploitation is still happening throughout the world today. And I want to you know highlight the Filipino experience because... Overseas remittances constitute a huge chunk of the Philippine GDP. So you have thousands, if not millions, of Filipinos moving abroad to work there, send money back, and all of them are under contract. right? And when a lot of these workers show up to these other countries, there are many cases in which a lot of their legal rights and freedoms are stripped away from them, and most terribly, like passports are taken. So there's literally no way for them to seek any kind of recourse or legal help. And very fortunately for Clark's grandma, she was able to get herself out of that situation and then build a a better life. But alas, you know, in the Filipino community, in a lot of other poor Southeast Asian and South Asian countries where people have to move abroad to find employment, this is an all too common tale. Yeah, one of my most vivid memories of teaching English in Hong Kong was a particular square in downtown Hong Kong where the Filipino nannies and domestic servants would congregate by the over a thousand on any given Sunday. And that was really an example of what you're just talking about. And yes, some some of these people were actually quite exploited overseas. But uh, 
I wanted to sort of mention something about this particular context where um, Spencer's grandmother comes from Glasgow, and the Glaswegians at this time were suffering from the continuation of wartime rations long after victory over Germany, and uh, in some ways the deindustrialization of what was once a thriving uh, industrial port, Glasgow, and so life was hard for Glaswegians at this time, so I can understand maybe why she decided to leave. Yeah, definitely another great story about someone leaving some adversity uh, in the place that she had started out in life, uh, but then ending up in a much better place through her immigrant story. And I just like the fact that you can kind of see one common theme even throughout all of her, her life story. Uh, you know, the idea that uh, this kind of nurturing idea, right? She comes here to be a nanny, and then she ends up uh, throughout her life working in areas where she's always taking care of someone, taking care of her community. Uh, and I think that's just a very a very nice thing that you can still see this very noble, positive impulse uh, as a running theme throughout her life. In our last story, midshipman Michael Migliore provides an evocative portrait of the life of Italian immigrants in Brooklyn in the first half of the 20th century. One of his great-grandfathers came as a ship's stowaway and, like so many others, was processed through Ellis Island before eventually finding work on the docks as a longshoreman. Migliore recalls that in the little Italy of his grandparents' generation, children played in the streets and everyone knew their neighbors. My name is Michael Migliori, and I'll be talking about my Italian ancestor's journey and life in Brooklyn, New York. Ellis Island served as an immigrant processing station that first opened at the start of 1892. Many Europeans traveled to the United States in search of work and in order to escape conflicts in their homelands. The first immigrant to officially be processed was a 17-year-old girl from Ireland named Annie Moore. While thousands were accepted into the U.S. throughout the early 20th century, there, were, there was an acceptance process. The process included mental and medical checks, and sadly, roughly 1% of immigrants were deported back to their homelands for failing these tests. Ellis Island was initially very small, but as immigration rapidly increased, more structures were included, such as hospitals, holding buildings, and barracks. In the early 1900s, under Immigration Commissioner William Williams, Ellis Island received its highest influx of immigrants. However, during World War I, immigration slowed dramatically to almost a complete halt. In 1914, 878,000 immigrants were processed, yet in 1919, only 26,000 were. This is roughly a 98% decrease in five years, an astounding bottleneck. The cause of this bottleneck was World, World War I. People bunkered down in their homes and were being drafted for war, ultimately slowing down the process of international travel. After the war, travel resumed and began to increase even more than before. In 1927, my grandma's father made the journey from Italy to Ellis Island when he was 14 years old. He traveled as an illegal stowaway on a cargo ship. Eventually, he was processed as a legal immigrant and settled in Brooklyn, New York. He worked small jobs such as a newspaper delivery boy and a market clerk before he got his job as a longshoreman, which is someone that unloads cargo from cargo ships. My grandma has told stories that he and his work buddies used to skim some of the cargo they used to move as a little work bonus. For example, 
used to come home from work wearing five or six pairs of pants or three jackets. Jobs and businesses were less regulated then, especially ones like this, which allowed more room for things to happen. My grandma also told me that he owned real estate in the slums of New York. He had a group that would go and make payment collections for him. As you can see, he worked many small jobs that all brought in some cash. Many immigrants at the time were not deemed qualified for higher level jobs, so they made their living by working with their hands. On the other side of my dad's family was my poppy. He was born in Brooklyn and lived in a fairly Italian neighborhood. As a result of the mass immigration movement, many of the neighborhoods in the surrounding area broke into regions based on their origin. When my poppy was younger, he used to be a milk delivery boy and dropped off glassed milk for five cents a bottle. He has told me that he used to drop off milk to the houses of some of the major crime families of New York as well, including the Luciano and Gagliano families. Although, he said for being such a rich and powerful family, they were stingy with their tips to the local delivery boy. While both petty and organized crime were common, he says that the reality of close living created a sense of community where neighbors were able to trust each other and also rely on each other. Poppy says he used to play a lot of street games like baseball, broomball, and football with the other boys in the neighborhood. He used to walk to the seafood markets to get the fresh seafood that was being brought in, as well as shop at the Italian markets spread throughout the area. Furthermore, living in a city meant most places were close by. He used to walk to and from school and the markets. Many of the little Italy's that exist today in modern cities are based off of these small seafood markets originating from Brooklyn and the other New York boroughs. These markets can be traced back to the homeland of Italy itself as well. My grandma and poppy met in Brooklyn and married in 1966. My dad was born in Brooklyn in 1974, a time where Brooklyn was as diverse as ever and becoming increasingly populated. In fact, at the time, it was the most populous borough. Back then, people still visited, but it was not nearly as crowded and touristy as it is now. My father's family moved to Delaware when he was in his early teen years, but they still took some of their life and traditions from New York with them. My grandparents still carry a thick Italian accent after years of being moved out of New York. We still have lots of Italian food and big Sunday dinners, which is a tradition. We enjoy telling stories at dinner and my grandparents get great joy at my enthusiasm for their past history and families. Yeah, what really uh, I found so enchanting about this particular story was just his evocation of life in Little Italy and his grandparents' generation. I mean, I grew up in the car culture of the West Coast where you didn't walk anywhere. You drove, basically, and then you didn't really know your neighbors that well. But this, it sounds so wonderful to be in a neighborhood full of fellow immigrants who kind of all know each other, and there's a certain degree of social trust there, which which is in some ways um, wonderful to imagine. Yeah, and this creation of immigrant communities is another common part of the immigrant story, right? A lot of immigrants, when they first get to this country, the first thing they do is they want to find other people who 
uh, are from their background, people who know what their lives were like because they lived those lives as well. Uh, and so you start to see all of these immigrant communities that are, you know, in some ways a bubble, right? They're trying to uh, protect their culture and not quite assimilate. But then most, in many ways, these are often uh, another example of the ways in which these cultures and communities adopt both elements of the old world and elements of the new world, right? And even the Italy example, you might have immigrants from all different parts of Italy uh, who come together and they start to meld and merge and create a uniquely Italian-American um, identity and not just Sicilian or uh, Roman or Tuscan. So I think it's a really great part of the immigrant story and one that Michael really captures well in his story. I love how New York naturally lends itself to having these specific communities for all these different ethnicities throughout the city. And I don't say that in a, in a kind of a dismissive way, but you know, New York being where Ellis Island is, it's the gateway to the United States from Europe. A lot of these immigrants from all over Europe are coming to this one place and trying to lay down roots or trying to build a whole new life. And so, yeah, that, that lends to this idea that they have to band together, right? But you know, fast forward many, many decades from then, I think this experience, this collective experience among all of these different immigrants lend to New Yorkers, the residents of this great city, becoming all the more resilient for it, right? Because an entire city of millions have to adapt and embrace so many different varying lifestyles and different perspectives, and they all have to keep making the city work, make the city run. Right? And you know, extrapolate that kind of experience to the rest of the United States and that kind of attitude of being welcoming and embracing immigration or immigrants. Right? That speaks to you know, just how great the country can be. This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History, and our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.